0: Hello, I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Did you know that so far throughout the two millennia of church history there have been only 36 people who were named doctors of the church? And we'll talk with a church historian tonight who will help us learn what it means to be a doctor and find out more about some of those individuals. First... We want to talk briefly with EWTN's Peter Gagnon about some special programs and live events from around the world that you can look forward to during Holy Week right here on EWTN. Peter, what have you got for us? Well,
1: next week the the holiest week of the year, we um, we really try to focus on a lot of the special programming that we have. Mm-hmm. A lot of our regular programming is preempted, so people should be aware of that. But we want to present specials focused on this week. So we start off with a lot of the liturgies from here with the friars, but also from around the world. So we'll go to Washington D.C., the Basilica, the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, for a number of liturgies from there. So from Holy Thursday to Good Friday and, and um, Holy Saturday as well as Easter Stunny people can participate in the liturgies from the from that magnificent shrine there. Mm-hmm. And we also will take people to the Holy Land. So there's a special event um, from the Garden of Olives that uh, is really a really beautiful event. I know you've been to uh, yeah. that church probably on Holy Thursday. And yeah, oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And the great procession afterwards.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's a very, very moving. We really try to bring as many events from the Holy Land that we can uh, throughout the year. But this one's a very um, a beautiful event. And then also we'll take you to Rome. We'll take the people to Rome for a variety of events with the Holy Father liturgies. Uh, the Way of the Cross from the Colosseum is always a, a really fantastic event. Very moving and a very popular so and we've always get people just love that event to tune into that. So and we'll also show the uh bring people the mass of Easter Sunday and, and his Erby at Orbi message to the world mm-hmm. on Easter Sunday. Besides these liturgical events, we also have a lot of specials. One of them is a new um special with Father Raymond de Souza on the seven last words of Christ. So Uh, he's done these the last few years and they're different meditations. We shoot these up in Canada where Father is and Father just does a great Uh, great job in in really reflecting on on the the messages of our Lord. And it's a great Good Friday tradition to have the meditations on those. So so people should tune in to see those. And um, also we'll have specials throughout the week. Now the friars went to the Holy Land several years ago and we went to the different sites focused on Holy Thursday on the Eucharist um, from the upper room to also, um, you know, obviously Good Friday, in Holy Saturday meditation. So we went to all these different locations with Father Mark and Father Joseph, and they were able to um, bring these meditations from these different sites to help us uh, get deeper into to the, this time of year, and also just really uh, renew our faith. And in, is in, uh, in just a beautiful location for these. We also have specials on the Shroud of Turin, and um, we have a number of those, like three different ones that we're gonna be airing throughout Holy Week. And even in specials on the Passion, there's some dramas we have. And um, and so there's a variety of, of great programs we have throughout Holy Week. And then finally, we also have programming for kids. So we want to make sure the kids are also fed during this Holy Week, understanding the, the Eucharist, understanding what the passion of our Lord meant. But, you know, it's for kids. And the, the Friar is one of the programs that we have that focuses on that and teaches them the, the wonders of the resurrection. So we're really trying to teach the kids and reinforce the faith as well. So... If people should go to EWTN.com forward slash Holy Week and they can see highlights and they can get the full schedule for, for their area for the specials that are airing throughout the week. So please join us. Spend a retreat week with EWTN this Holy Week. Yeah.
0: Well, that's a great idea to do. All right. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. And we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guest. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We have a guest tonight who is an author, a church historian. He knows a lot about other parts of history, too, as well as a theologian. He is also the Washington, D.C., Bureau Chief and the Executive Director of EWTN News. He's busy, besides being a husband, uh, in his spare time. HE HOSTS AN INFORMATIVE DOCUMENTARY SERIES ON EDEVITIAN CALLED THE DOCTORS OF THE CHURCH. AND HE'S HERE TO HELP US TONIGHT TO GET A BETTER UNDERSTANDING OF WHAT THE TERM DOCTOR OF THE CHURCH MEANS. THEN WHO ARE THESE DOCTORS? AND HOW AND WHY ARE THEY NAMED DOCTORS? WHY DO WE CALL THEM DOCTORS? SO uh, SOMETHING I ALSO NOTICED uh, earlier, the, as the show began, I made a mistake that there are actually, as of January 21st of this year, uh, 37 doctors of the church because St. Irenaeus of Lyon was finally named a doctor. I was waiting so long I fell asleep, 1,800 years. So, to tell us more about it and keep us up to date, please welcome Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Matthew, how are you?
2: Always a joy to be here. It's
0: good to have you here, too. Um, Hopefully you enjoy Birmingham as well as Washington. Always. Yes. Um, First of all, let's go to this question. What do we mean by doctor of the church? I remember uh, seeing that there was a doctor of the church celebrating my birthday Mm -hmm. in the calendar. And I said, wow. You know, is he a patron saint of doctors? I I just assume
2: medical doctors. What do we mean? Well, when we're talking about doctors of the church, uh, we're talking about uh, someone who is an exceptional teacher. A doctor is somebody who teaches. uh, But also a doctor is someone who helps us to learn more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the function of a doctor is to make us also healthier to improve us. Mm -hmm. And for all of those different reasons, uh, the church over these centuries, really from Mm -hmm. about 1298, has designated a very exclusive group of people. Uh, Only 37, as you noted, uh, have been declared doctors of the church. They're men, they're women, they're bishops, a couple of popes, they're women religious, there's uh, of course the famous Dominican Catherine of Siena, But this is an exclusive group that is chosen for a couple of important reasons. First, they have to be saints, and we can talk more about this. Mm -hmm. They have to have a great eminence of teaching. And and that itself has been kind of the source of controversy over the centuries. And then they have to be declared by the church to have that title. So those are the basic three ways, that the the three components, requirements that you have to be a doctor of the church. So
0: sanctity, you have to
2: be a saint. Right, eminence of teaching. So your teaching has to be really of the highest quality. It does. And then uh, there's a declaration by the church. Now officially or technically uh, a doctor of the church can be declared by a pope or an ecumenical council. Mm -hmm. None of the doctors throughout history have been declared by an ecumenical council. A few like Thomas Aquinas have been held up like by the Council of Trent as a great magnificent figure. someone that we can learn from. But the popes have been really the the main way that doctors of the church have been proclaimed.
0: Yep. Okay, okay. So we have 37 of them, and there are quite a few who have been very significant. Uh, Some of them are bet less known. <laughs> that would be fair. <laughs> That'd be very
2: fair, actually. <laughs> give,
0: give us an example. Of one, well, I the think probably known. the most
2: obscure was the one that was recently named by uh, Pope Francis, and that's uh, Gregory of Narek, uh, who was an Armenian monk of the 10th century, uh, who I can guarantee very few people had ever heard of no. uh, prior to his uh, designation. Uh, yeah, I've got
0: a fair amount of historical background. I Until you mentioned him,
2: i never heard of them. That's right. But, and this is something that we can talk more about, the popes choose doctors of the church not just because these are eminent figures in history, but because also there's a, a, a lesson that we can all learn from them in this moment. Mm -hmm. And Pope Francis, who has a great fondness for Eastern liturgy, as you know, for Eastern theology, for the Eastern churches, was looking at Gregory of Narek as somebody who can help us to understand more deeply Mm -hmm. uh, the prayer, the liturgy, the life of the Eastern Christianity. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Gregory of Narek, he also left behind a magnificent work called the Book of Lamentations, which was his version, almost an homage to the Psalms. And it makes for very powerful reading uh, and really does open that gateway for us to appreciate Armenian Christianity, but Eastern Christianity as well. So that's one of those important lessons, I think, uh, that as obscure as someone as Gregory of Narek might be, Mm -hmm. there's an important lesson in his life, but there's an important lesson for us today in our lives.
0: A good number of the doctors I'd say the majority have been either from the Mediterranean world, both Greek-speaking and writing, as well as Latin writing. That's right. A number of them are from the uh, more northern parts of Europe. But there aren't so many that are Oriental. It, we think of Eastern uh, Christianity and, as Greek. right? But this is father to the. This is more part of the Oriental part of the Church right. in, in Asia, Western Asia.
2: Yeah, we think of Cyril of Jerusalem, for example. Yes. Uh, who's a, a beautiful example and, and the Church considers that Asia. Uh, when you look at Vatican documents... So does the <laughs> geography. <laughs> exactly. But when you look, uh, we, we tend to think of it as the Middle East now or the Near East, yeah. but it's it, it is the Orient, it is Asia. Right. And uh, from, for right. example, if you look at the documents from the Holy See and how the world is sort of divided up for dioceses and other things, it is Asia. Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're looking at, at statistics, yeah. perfectly valid. I think it's an important point to make yeah. uh, that we have someone like Cyril of Jerusalem, but at the same time, we can also have someone like Therese of Lisieux uh, who died right, in 1897 in France, or you have the venerable Bede, uh, an English writer, an mm-hmm. English doctor of the church. In- Lest we forget, we also have an African
0: doctor in Saint Augustine. That's right, and also in Saint Athanasius. That's right, that they're both African doctors. I don't know if there are any other Africans.
2: No, I mean those would be those the two are the primary. Two. Yeah,
0: one spoke Greek and the other Latin,
2: but they were both from North Africa. That's right, and part of the magnificent Greco-Roman civilization uh, that was the the beautiful fertile soil for the Christian faith. And it's also a reminder of the antiquity of the doctors of the church. Mm-hmm. We, we, we talk about the fathers of the church. Uh, that's a very set time from the early Greek fathers to the Latin fathers, but that ended uh, around the time of Isidore of Seville, as you know. Right, right, so by,
0: do, by fathers of the church, these are
2: disciples
0: of the apostles and other disciples. And their disciples. Right. So there's that direct linkage through them to to the apostles in Christ.
2: Right, and we see that uh, very clearly in someone like uh, Irenaeus. Right. uh, Who uh, was somebody who knew Polycarp, who knew the the disciples themselves.
0: Yeah, St. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. Exactly. For 20
2: years. Right. So there is that beautiful connection that pedigree, so to speak, that Mm -hmm. we see in especially the early doctors of the church. But then we see this magnificent movement throughout history and what sets the doctors apart from especially the fathers of the church, as important as they are, and rightfully so, we honor them in every possible way. The thing that is so intriguing about the, the doctors of the church is that some of them are fathers but so many of them now stretch across the whole of the history of the church. Right. So that we can go from now from an Irenaeus, of what died in the late second century, mm-hmm. probably a martyr, all the way to Therese of Lisieux who died on the cusp of the 20th century. And uh, before we finish our conversation tonight, I hope we can maybe speculate. I'd love to hear, for example, who you think would be a good doctor of the church and who you think might be the next doctor of the church. Mm. Something to think about. Okay. But, um, So we have the whole of church history stretching out before us with these doctors of the church, men and women, and each of them playing a significant role in their own eras, but then reflecting on the teachings of the church up to their time, and then offering us now this treasury afterward. There's
0: a a wonderful line in the Gospel of St. John where our Lord said that uh, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. I can't tell you everything now, but the Holy Spirit will mm-hmm. lead you into all truth. These doctors over the centuries are the thinkers who continue to try to see the ramifications, the meaning of the gospel in a wide variety of new situations. Right new questions come up. And St. Augustine answered them in his day. 800 years later, St. Thomas Aquinas deals with them. And then you, you
2: keep moving forward to, through, uh, to modern times. Right. And you have uh, something that you're, you're touching on is very, very important about the doctors of the church and the great saints and theologians in the history of the church, many of whom are doctors and that is that we have these new situations, these new crises facing the church because so many of the doctors of the church, I think of Leo the Great, for example, in one of the darkest periods imaginable, Gregory the Great, another incredibly difficult period for the church. Building on what they had learned and they were passing on the faith, the unchanging teachings of the church. It's that old joke that it it works every time it's tried. Mm -hmm. And in these new situations, the, the teachings of the church are there for us as this treasury. It's a solution to our problem. And the doctors remind us of that. Yeah. Today, when we're hearing from theologians, in some cases now even bishops, uh, for example, in Germany, who are suggesting that we need to get with the times and change the teachings of the church in order to be more <laughs> consistent with the social sciences, that is a reminder, it's a potent reminder of why we need the doctors of the church because what they proposed were the solutions to our crises today, but it's the unchanging beauty and teachings of the church to do it.
0: You know, when I was studying theology before ordination, it was sadly striking to me that apart from our historical courses, All of the articles we read had been written after the Vatican Council as if there were this break in history. And they didn't even, a lot of these books and articles did not cite Vatican II itself. They were just saying, well, that marked the breaking point and we're moving forward. Whereas when you read Vatican II, You need to take a look at the end of each document and pay attention to the footnotes. Mm -hmm. And it's St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, St. Irenaeus, (laughs) St. Gregory the Great. These are, these doctors of the church are quoted in the council, but in some ways, smaller minds think that they can, neglect these great minds and do a better job starting from scratch. It reminds me of the little rascals finding scraps and building their own little homemade vehicle to go into a race. It always falls apart. Right.
2: The difference there is that that was fun to watch. Sometimes this isn't. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. And the doctors of the church have dealt with these crises um, that have called into question things like the divinity of Christ. The, the Aryan controversy was yeah. something that the doctors of the church, the fathers of the church, dealt with in their own era. Robert Bellarmine, a great Jesuit, Peter well, Canisius, mm-hmm. dealt with the, the work of the Protestant revolt of the Protestant Re- reformers, uh, in their own way, shattering Christian unity Yes. but also proposing things that were simply not the teachings of the church. And rather than embrace them, Robert Bellarmine, Peter Canisius, Francis de Sales, found ways to refute them. But they also found ways to do it in charity, with love, yes. and in a way that could be understood by anybody, by the average person. And I think that's one of our lessons today from the doctors of the church. There's always this temptation you want to sound smart. The doctors of the church were about as smart as, they, as anyone you'd ever meet. Every doctor is.
0: But as I like to say, they knew how to bring the hay down so the goats could get some. Exactly.
2: And that, that was one of the great hallmarks of someone like Francis de Sales, who he didn't take pride in it, but it was a simple reality that when he would deliver a, a homily, when he would teach, he would do it in a way that any king, any cardinal, any farmer could understand.
0: Yeah. This, this is a very important thing because the, the church, uh, it's, and it's not only the Catholic Church. Uh, I, I have a number of Protestant minister friends, and a number of the denominations are making horrible decisions theologically. Their founders whether it's Martin Luther mm-hmm. or John Calvin or uh, John Wesley, these founders would have exploded in fury <laughs> at trying to change the Blessed Trinity right and committing very old heresies all over again and trying to baptize people in false notions of the Trinity we, You know, the the reformers disagree with us, but they had more in agreement than some of the contemporaries. And that continuity being lost means people vote with their feet. Mm -hmm. It's not the authentic faith of Christ and his
2: church. And they just walk away until hopefully someone preaches it. When you can see the fruits of the truth, the, the fruits of good teaching, uh, in someone like De Sales, mm-hmm. uh, who as a priest went into the, the Chablais region, uh, part of Savoy and, and that and in Switzerland, mm-hmm. Switzerland and all of that. And by the time he was done, 90,000 people had come back to the church yeah. as a result of just his preaching. Yeah. And that, that universal call to holiness. And so it's, it's the opposite of um, watering down in order to be popular, uh, to try to pretend that you're something you're not.
0: Or in the case of the the period right before the uh, Reformation, there were a lot of priests who were treating the ministry as a career choice by which they became enriched uh, financially. They ignored the moral teachings, the Ten Commandments, and were especially the sixth. Um, You know, and they were involved in lots and lots of illicit affairs. Mm -hmm. And by them neglecting the truth, they wouldn't deny it. They just wouldn't live it. Those who denied it at least sounded more sincere. Right. But they were still sincerely wrong. The errors of bad priests doesn't mean you can change the doctrine. The doctors of the church remind us of that.
2: Which is something that Augustine uh, was such a great role model for. Yes. uh, In not just the incredible reform of his own life that we read in the Confessions, but then fighting things like the Donatists uh, who were denying the validity of the sacraments based on the the, the morals of, of a priest. Right. And challenging openly the, the Church's teachings on grace. Mm-hmm. But one of the other aspects too that uh, is important in that is, I always go back to the phrase of uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great, Semper Ecclesia Reformanda, the Church is always in reform. Yes. But the reform has to be anchored in something. That's why we, we, you were just mentioning the Second Vatican Council, uh, and this idea of a rupture uh, after the Council, as though nothing was of consequence before it, and only what came after matters. And in a way, the, the, they, they place the, the council in a vacuum that it is what they want it to be. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the doctors of the church, the fathers of the church, but especially the doctors of the church understood what Pope Benedict always referred to and continues to as the hermeneutic of continuity and reform versus a hermeneutic or way of looking at the world of rupture.
0: Yeah, the word hermeneutic, you know, means from Greek, interpretation or translation, and you're right. Pope Benedict, who was at the council, <laughs> right, as was Pope Saint John Paul. Pope Benedict is the last pope to be at the council, and the the previous ones had all been there, uh, you know, from Pope uh, John the Twenty Third, right. and so. Uh, this idea that the past is done, where there, there grew to be what I like to call the triumph of the present moment. We're in the present, and what we think now, this is where we're going.
2: Well, and, and it's a tyranny of the present moment. Well, there's that. Because we're hostage to whatever the fads and whims are, uh, yeah. which, which we have seen. Right. And someone like Irenaeus, uh, who was uh, refuting the, the Gnostics and, and others in his time, what was his clarion call? And that was the teaching of the apostles handed down by the successors right. of the apostles. That's exactly right. And to have that confidence, to have that trust, but then to have the courage and the intellectual honesty and also the, the holiness to recognize that this is our obligation to pass this on mm-hmm. undiluted, but still in a way that is meaningful and relevant to the lives of every person. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, uh, that was a, a key thing. But in, in their day, they could also see the ramifications of error. That one, of the, one part of the genius of the fathers of the church is they saw the error and they started to follow it to its logical conclusions and saw that you follow the error and it follows you right out of the church, and maybe right out of heaven. <laughs> right. that's, that, that's what they were concerned about. It's not just a political party issue. Your eternal life is
2: at stake with the truth. That's pretty important. It is, and and Augustine understood that. Uh, <laughs> and his relevance for his generation, let, to put him within his time frame, this was a, a Roman empire that was on its last legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was declining as a civilization. And in the face of the sack of Rome, in the face of uh, the, the fall of everything that had gone before, mm-hmm. they were blaming the Christians. Right. Here was somebody who was dealing with that, but then also dealing with something like the Donatus controversy, who is able to say, this is my past. I was a remarkable sinner, and yet I have found Christ. I have found, through his grace, I have been saved. Mm -hmm. And then he's able to reflect in the city of God on what are the stakes here For the cities in which we live, the city of God and the city of man. Right. And that's another lesson for us today.
0: Yeah. No. He's he was dealing with uh, you know Rome fell to the Visigoths in 410, ten years before he died, and then while he was dying, Vandals were taking over his city. That's right. You know uh, and. Not only were they barbarians, they were Christians, but they were Aryan heretics. Right. So uh, all of this, I mean, had they gotten a hold of his writings and destroyed them,
2: what a loss that would have been. Well, and that's uh, one of the, the keys to why we appreciate the doctors. That eminence of teaching, they, they leave behind this legacy. Uh, and when we talk about the causes of saints, one of the things that's often reflected on is really crucial in any cause from the diocesan phase to all the way to canonization mm-hmm. is this idea of proving sanctity, living a life of heroic virtue, but then also leaving this legacy of holiness that, has, that impacts the lives of those who follow you. Mm-hmm. And we can see that in each of the doctors of the church. Right. Uh, that they changed whole countries, they changed eras in which they lived, but it's a legacy that just kept moving through, mm-hmm. through time over the centuries. And even
0: in terms of the development of, of our faith and development of understanding, sometimes people say, well, I'm more of a Thomist uh, and I don't like Augustine. But again, there's not this radical break St. Augustine dominated all theology in the West for 800 years. St. Thomas quotes and cites Augustine and starts from there using a different approach from Aristotle. But he starts from there and he cites Augustine all over the place because he's not in a radical break. He's developing in a whole new, uh, it's like a, Rock, stage of a rocket. A whole new stage has taken off, uh, but it hasn't destroyed the rest. We're going to take a little break. Uh, we'll be right back with some of your questions and comments. But the series that Dr. Matthew Bunsen has done is called The Doctors of the Church. And you can watch these episodes anytime with EWTN on command. Simply go to on demand dotewtn.com dot and watch the ones you that have been made and that you're interested in anytime you wish. We'll be back in a couple minutes, so please stay with us. WELCOME BACK, AND I THINK WE HAVE A PHONE CALL, BUT I CAN'T QUITE READ THE NAME. Uh, ANGELINA. ANGELINA, ARE yes. YOU THERE? YES, I AM. WHERE ARE YOU CALLING FROM? I'M CALLING FROM SOUTH JERSEY. WONDERFUL. THANK YOU. Okay. AND WHAT uh, IS YOUR QUESTION or comment? I WOULD LIKE TO KNOW, FIRST OF ALL, THE LIFE OF ST. Um He, uh, St. Monica, prayed for that guy. Are are you asking about Ambrose or Augustine? Augustine, Augustine. Oh, okay. I met Augustine. I had asked about Ambrose, though. I asked the guy when I was talking to him. St. Augustine, he, his mother prayed for him for 17 years, that poor woman. He was so bad. He he did everything, I mean, everything from, uh, he was a gigolo. Gave or everything, I mean, he was a playboy, and how he, I'm wondering how he even got to be a priest while alone a doctor of a church. <laughs> that okay. is what I would like to
2: know. Yeah, great question, Angelina. I appreciate that. It really is a great question, and, and uh, the, the easiest answer to that, the shortest answer, is from Augustine himself, who once said that every sinner uh, has a future and every saint has a past. Yep and I think he's the perfect living embodiment of that truth yep. that he recognized in himself. Uh, it was always this search for truth as uh, Pope Benedict XVI and some of his beautiful reflections on the doctors of the church and mm-hmm. his general audiences would talk about um, Augustine, even in his darkest moments of sin, was always looking for the truth. Yes. And he ultimately found it. And That transformation in him helped turn him into a saint. But then it was taking all of the gifts that God gave him and putting them to God's service that then also led him to become one of the greatest theologians Mm -hmm. and doctors of the church in the history of the church. Yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, That's one of the reasons that uh, we really encourage people to read uh, his confessions. Uh, Sister Ida. Who taught me in eighth grade said, You boys shouldn't die without reading St. Augustine's Confessions. So I said, Well, I don't know how long I'll live. I'll go read it now. I didn't understand it. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> but, but I the little stories. Okay. Um, it was good like to go a, back later on. Stealing the pears. Yeah. Uh, where he, he stole perfectly good pears. He had pears. I mean, why steal pears? And ultimately, he and his friends didn't even eat them, they threw them to the pigs. Yeah. And that was one of those lessons in looking back on where he, it wasn't so much the stealing, it was the actual sin itself that he was reveling in. Right. And then being able to apply that to his later life and then to have that moment of conversion in the garden. And we can't talk about Augustine without thinking of his great mother, Monica, uh, who, who wept for him every day and to whom a bishop once said that uh, a, a child of so many tears will not be lost.
0: The other thing, too, uh, Angelina, is that he did not seek priesthood at all. His bishop in Hippo pretty much forced it upon him and then forced him to be a bishop so that he could take his place when the bishop died. Yeah, similar to what we saw with Ambrose. Right, right. He didn't seek it either. Right. We have another caller, Marlene. Yes. Good good evening, Father Parker. Hi. Where are you calling from? Puerto Rico. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for calling. What can we do for you this evening? Yes, thank you. The question is for your guest. It is a three-part question. Um, First, does does the guest think that St. Louis de Montfort meets the criteria to be a doctor of the church? Number two, is the guest aware if St. Louis de Montfort's name has been submitted? Um, and if number three, is so, why does the guest think that it is taking so long? Thank you very much, and I will hang up
2: now. Thank you so much for calling. All right. It's a, it's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, all of us have favored saints. Um, I love St. Robert Bellamy, who is a doctor of the Church, but I also love uh, Oh, someone like St. Charles Borromeo, one of the great reformers. Uh, yes. But I don't think his name has ever really been put forward to be a doctor mm. of the church. In much the same way that I think uh, Louis de Montfort, there are probably many good reasons for him to be declared a doctor of the church because he can teach us so much. Mm-hmm. But as far as I'm aware, it's never actually been put forward. Yeah, uh, I, I've not heard him
0: put forward. But his, his books are very, very popular. Right but, you know, and have been so and very influential in leading people to true devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right,
2: so he would meet, you can certainly make the case, he meets at least two of the criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, the saintliness, clearly right. a saint. Second, eminence of teaching. Now, the question becomes, uh, is it eminent enough? Right. Uh, in the eye of a, a pope, this pope, a future pope, that right. it may come. But it also raises a really interesting point because someone like Therese of Lisieux, when Pope St. John Paul II declared her a doctor of the church, the question was raised, she left almost nothing behind in terms of what we would think of as an eminence of teaching. Mm-hmm. We, we have her autobiography, but that was about it. Mm-hmm. And his answer, as, as is customary with popes when they name a doctor of the church, was uh, this beautiful letter on the science of divine love mm-hmm. and how despite we don't have a lot of teaching from her but what she taught was so important mm-hmm. uh, that she merits to become a doctor of the church, the, the, the little way of doing things in perfect love. Mm-hmm. That's the lesson that John Paul II was trying to teach us in the life of Teresa of Lisieux, and it's distinctly possible that the day may come that a, a Pope decides that Louis de Montfort, what his teaching was and offers us is so important that he should be a doctor of the church. I, I don't
0: think that um, St. Albert the Great was made a doctor of the church until the 1930s. That's
2: right, 1931.
0: About almost 700 years after he had died. That's right. So, you know,
2: the church moves slowly. Well, Irenaeus, 1800 years. Saint Irenaeus, even longer.
0: <laughs> right, 1800 years, a long time. We have another caller. Clement? Yeah, that's me, uh, Father Mitch. Where are you calling from? Uh, that, that great place in the Bronx, New York. Bronx, New York. Yes. <laughs> I hear that in your voice. Great to have you with us. And what is your question, sir? Well, uh, there's 36 doctors, but I'd be surprised if there's more than 10 women. All right, or so are there? I mean, I don't know. I have no clue. All uh, right, well, let's find out. We're going to give I mean, you more man, you than a clue. Off if there's not that many, you can tick off to me uh, what these t- uh, 10 or whatever it is uh, women
2: are. We'll give you the exact ones. Really? There are four. Matthew, there are there four. Are four women doctors of Counting the church. Count Clement, four. In 1970, the first two were named uh, by now Pope St. Paul VI. It was Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Avila. And then we had Teresa of Lisieux from John Paul II. And then Pope Francis, or sorry, Pope Benedict XVI, named Hildegard of Bingen, uh, another one of those very obscure uh, saints, a Benedictine abbess, uh, as the fourth of the doctors. Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: And you know, uh, with with Hildegard, uh, she had a, a, a wrench thrown in the way because there was a horrible mistranslation of her works, a <laughs> dumb mistranslation. And she was made to say foolish things right. that were just not true. Well, uh, and, 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 and so that is very important well, that they've cleared with, that
2: up. And well, exactly. And with, with uh, Hildegard, you had uh, a profound abbess who was uh, a counselor, and advisor. She was sought after by popes and emperors. Brilliant woman. And in her own time was beloved, respected, she was hijacked a bit, uh, not just because of the terrible translation, but as a kind of guerrilla feminist in the Middle Ages, uh, that she was waging this secret war against the patriarchy. If you know her life and her writings, uh, the contemporary of Bernard of Clairvaux, another doctor of the church, yeah. she submitted everything that she wrote, everything that she was possibly going to teach for authentication by the church, that what the church teaches she wanted to teach in exactly the same way that uh, Teresa Vavila Avila did. Mm-hmm. So for Hildegard, us today, it's a, it's a perfect example of how declaring her a doctor of the church sort of clears her name, but then offers us a glimpse into this remarkable mystic uh, who understood the beauty of church teaching and compose these beautiful hymns that we can appreciate now uh, as Catholics, as Christians, mm-hmm. uh, and take her back as, as somebody who's ours Yeah, and, and really treasure her for that.
0: And she wasn't some wackadoodle New, new Age no. person. No, no. No, I remember I was, for my book, Catholics in the New Age, I wrote about this bad, tra- it was mistranslation, right? Um, quite frankly. And they said they did it from the original German. She wrote in Latin. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But the dopes. All right. Um, We have another caller. Hello, Gail. Yes. How are you? Where are you from? I am from Plymouth, Michigan. Wonderful. And what is your question or comment? Okay. I don't quite understand the eight levels of the Doctors of the Church. I have two questions.
2: Can you explain that? Eight levels of Doctors of the Church. I'm not really sure. I mean, we, we can certainly go back to what we were talking about earlier and uh, the three requirements for a Doctor of the Church of yeah. uh, sanctity, the eminence of teaching, uh, and then, of course, a, a formal declaration.
0: Do you know of of there being degrees or levels of doctor? Uh, no, now
2: one thing. I that, don't either. Well, I've not heard that. One way that we can think about it, though, is that um, we have doctors, as we were talking earlier, who are certainly more famous than others, mm-hmm. uh, and many of the doctors have titles attached to their names. Right. Thomas Aquinas is the angelic, the angelic doctor, doctor, the doctor angelicus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bonaventure is often called the doctor seraphicus or the seraphic right. doctor. Right. Irenaeus now who's just named by Pope Francis uh, is the doctor of unity. Mm-hmm. So there's something in their teaching in particular, I think that that helps us to understand a little bit more about them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know of, um, uh, you know, a- any degrees. I, I there, and this is one of the things I wonder about. You know, in doctrine, there are different degrees right. of importance. You know, some doctrines have a higher mm-hmm. uh, priority over some of the others. That's right. For instance, the oneness of God is one of highest priority. Yes. Um, and, you know, some of the other doc- defined doctrines have, are, are consequent, they they flow from these Mm -hmm. higher ones,
2: but there's no difference of doctors. No, I I think the doctors themselves, uh, one of the hallmarks of so many of the doctors was profound humility. And I think uh, as a group, uh, they would look at each other and and each would probably feel unworthy to belong in the group they're in. Yeah, except maybe Jerome, (laughs) he was cranky. (laughs) Right
0: really (laughs) crazy. Ask Augustine. (laughs) Yeah. We have another call. Joan? Hi, Father. Where are you calling from? Um, New York and Mr. Buster. Okay. Hello, how are you? Um, Fine. I was just wondering, you know, um, how come they're so, like, 37? I mean, you have thousands of saints and how come they're so few? And then, number two, how come St. Paul isn't looked into? Because, I mean, he had a big conversion and he wrote half of the New Testament and and also St. Faustina. Anybody looking into those two? All right, so why are there so few doctors of the church, first of all?
2: Well, I think partly because this is a very exclusive group. Not an elite group, as as we've been talking, but an Mm -hmm. exclusive group. Mm -hmm. And we've seen throughout history, we go back to 1298 uh, with the, the first of the doctors, Boniface VIII, all the way through the centuries that. Popes have chosen doctors of the church for different reasons that we've been talking, mm-hmm. at specific moments in time and with lessons to, to learn from them. And there have been 37 occasions uh, in which a pope has decided this is an opportune moment to name a doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a hand of providence in, in a lot of this too, That we look at someone like John of Avila, another one of those very obscure doctors of the church who was a beloved contemporary of Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Francis Borgia. Uh, Two of those are doctors of the church. So you Mm -hmm. had three in Spain during the the, the great era of the the Catholic reform there. Mm -hmm. John of Avila was held up by Benedict XVI Mm -hmm. when he named him a doctor of the church as a patron of priests, as a doctor of the Eucharist somebody who can teach us today about the importance of priesthood, of understanding the priesthood, but also understanding and having that true devotion to the Eucharist at a time when, in our own polling for EWTN and Real Clear Opinion, 50% of Catholics believe in the real presence. So here's that lesson uh, Mm -hmm. that that John of Avila can teach us and, and why, again, it's a very exclusive group. Yeah,
0: yeah. We have another caller. Hello, Michael? Yes. Yes, Father, I'm here. Hi, where are you calling from? Calling from South Jersey. Thank you for taking my call. My question okay. to your guest is, were any of Saint Augustine's writings uh, I won't say disputed but thought of differently by Saint Thomas Aquinas? Okay, did Saint Thomas Aquinas uh argue against the St. Augustine?
2: Well, I mean, St. Thomas looked at everything uh, and, yeah. and, and you can weigh in on this too. Uh, in, in looking at everything, I think in the questions in the Summa and in reflecting on theology, you know, Thomas had different perspectives as, as we noted, but there is still that continuity of, of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he holds up Augustine yeah. as, as a powerful role model of not just not for good theology, but also for a good life.
0: One, one of the things about, uh, Michael, about St. Um, Thomas's approach to St. Augustine, he didn't refute what St. Augustine had written, but St. Augustine had experienced a conversion. He'd been a lawyer, and he began to reflect. Uh, he could win, argue a case. But just because he could win a case didn't mean that the person was really innocent. He, and so this forced him, and we, we see that with lawyers today. They can argue a case, win, whether the guy's innocent or not. And so Augustine, as he was studying style under, uh, by, by reading Cicero, the greatest Latin stylist there was he also discovered the importance of truth and he used the philosophy of Plato and the methods of Plato. He didn't really read much Plato, but he used the same approach to to thinking. While St. Thomas Aquinas lived at a time when the philosopher Aristotle was being discovered And so the questions changed. And especially the great philosophers of Aristotle at the time of St. Augustine were Arabs and Muslim. And so they approached Aristotle from a Muslim perspective. So what Thomas did is look at St. Augustine through a lens of... Aristotle, and would cite him as a, an authority to prove the arguments in favor of the Catholic position. Now, as you said, he would look at everything. But he, it, he didn't argue against Augustine. He just gave Augustine a very different perspective with questions from the ideas of Aristotle the distinctions, Aristotle's very precise and different um, logical distinctions. And so he used those to address questions posed by uh, Averroes and Avicenna and the other mm-hmm. uh, Arab commentators and others as well. And Augustine was cited to refute because Augustine gave wisdom. He just had to restate it through that Aristotelian lens. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. And and you can see uh, in Augustine, in in much the same way with Aquinas, the wisdom of the ancient world, the, the wisdom that was there in philosophy, in Plato, the wisdom that was there in Aristotle, but then Christianizing it. Yes. And, and bringing it into us right. uh, in, because of the logic that it brings, but also the, the view of the world that it brings. Right. And so we're looking at two different eras uh, in Augustine and Aquinas. And, and especially in Aquinas, we have that rebirth, that re understanding of Aristotle. He's right. simply called the philosopher. Right. And we can see that work in scholasticism, uh, and we can see that work even in someone, another doctor of the church like Albert the Great.
0: Yes. Who
2: was a teacher
0: of Saint Augustine, right. uh, and, uh, a great teacher, and now also patron saint of scientists. Thank you very much for helping to head up this series called "The Doctors of the Church" and for coming here to be with us tonight. Again, you can watch "The Doctors of the Church" with Dr. Matthew Bunsen anytime. will be at, on EWTN On Demand. Simply go to ondemand.ewtn.com and watch it today. And in fact, uh, it's a fun series uh, that I got to be part of. You are with you are, uh, uh, Bellarmine. Upcoming and episode on Robert Bellarmine and, and Peter Kinesius. Saint Jerome. Exactly. That's why I know he's cranky. That's why I like him. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, and thank all of you. And may the good Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. May the Lord lead you in all of your ways by His peace. The Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, we can bring Dr. Bunsen here, but also... DO THIS SERIES AND GIVE THIS INSTRUCTION ON THE FOLLOWERS AND ALL THE OTHER PROGRAMS, ESPECIALLY NEXT WEEK AS WE GET TO HOLY WEEK AND EASTER, ONLY BECAUSE THE NETWORK IS BROUGHT TO YOU BY YOU. YOU ARE MAKING IT POSSIBLE AND ARE SHARING IN THE MISSION. SO PLEASE KEEP US IN BETWEEN YOUR GAS BILL, YOUR electric BILL, AND YOUR CABLE BILL, AND WE'LL PAY OUR BILLS TOO. THANK YOU AND GOD BLESS.